0: That's a rock solid couple right there. Great family, all those guys. My wife and I, years ago, we were um, sleeping peacefully, uh, and then at about six thirty in the morning, uh, it sounded like the house was caving in. I, and when you're asleep, you're dead in asleep, and something like that happens, you just you can't even quite get your bearings. Like I could, I could. Is there an earthquake? Is is are the trees falling on the house? What is? Happening, and and finally I get my wits about me, and I'm like, "Oh, the the roofers are coming today." They said they said they were coming at eight, six thirty. I'm groggy. I pull on some shorts. I go out in the front yard. I look up, and there's a dude standing on my roof, and looks down at me. And pardon my horrible Hispanic accent. He says, "It's okay to start working." (laughs) Like, you're on it, bro. You are. You're working. What, what we're looking at today, you should hear Jesus coming through saying, are you ready to start working? For some of us, we would say, yes, I'm already working. I'm working maybe even too much. And Jesus would respond to that. Yeah. But are you ready to start working in the right ways for the right reasons? last week, I need to back up a little bit. Last week, I suggested to you that humanity is designed to be enthralled, to be enchanted. Um, even though in the, in the sort of the scientific revolution and the, the age of enlightenment and, and the modern mind, we are somewhat less enchanted by things because we understand how they work a little bit deeper. The mysteries are, are gone. But I would argue that we are designed uh, it is at the core of the worship that we, that we have and we give to God is this, this uh, a capacity to be energized and excited about something bigger than us, more magnificent than us. And that very thing can be exploited, and it is exploited, uh, by dark forces, uh, uh, movements and causes that, that have the wrong ends in mind tap into that design, uh, you can see it happening in your own life uh, through uh, sensationalistic news, uh, deceptive uh, marketing tactics, hidden algorithms, addictive uh, entertainment strategies, uh, empty promises of fame and fortune. You You can literally feel the forces tapping into something within us and that end up taking us really captive in a lot of ways. And and of those things, as much as I I think we need to be more enchanted by the things of God, we need to be disenchanted of some other things. Let me give you an example of what it might look like to be more enchanted by God. Have have you seen the news of uh, Sagittarius A? Have you seen the picture, the long-awaited photo of um, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. It's a supermassive black hole. It's called Sagittarius A. It's at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Not not like the sun, for most of you. That's the middle middle of our solar system. The, The Milky Way galaxy, if you recall from your early science classes, is where hundreds of billions of stars, and thousands and thousands of solar systems exist, this Milky Way galaxy. All the stars that you see on a dark night are part of the galaxy of suns that we live in. At the center of that galaxy is this very black hole. It's 25,000 light years from Earth. You You know how many miles a light year is? Six trillion. <laughs> 25,000 of those is where this black hole is, and that's just as far as it is away from the earth. Those three shining knots on there are trillion degree gases, and the mass of this thing is four million times that of the sun. It's a region of space so dense, catch this, it bends space and time. I have no idea what that means, but... If you can bend space and time, it's impressive. And it's also described to have an eternal core. An eternal core. It's amazing stuff. Maybe more amazing is what one of the scientists said about Sagittarius A, uh, and particularly this photo that they had been trying to capture for 20 years. This is what he said. I met Sagittarius A 20 years ago and have loved it and tried to understand it ever since. Another scientist said, based on the relative calmness of this black hole, it's a gentle giant in the center of our galaxy. I believe these scientists are being enchanted by God. I don't think that, there's, that, that science has found its way to the inner sanctum, uh, a cosmic center room where God is. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not true any more than uh, you are the sum total of your physical body and the things that you have created and the things that you've written. Those things describe you and the universe and all that God's created has, it describes him and it, and, it, and it comes back to him. It is, it is no surprise to me that when scientists peer more deeply into the creation of God and into spaces that are indescribable, that they are being enchanted by the creator of those things. They find themselves experiencing the character of God and embracing and speaking very unscientist-like concepts, like endless love and uh, gentleness and eternity. Allow yourself to be enchanted again by the mysteries and the magnificence of God that is in and through all of the creation of his Allow it to happen. On the other side of this coin, we have some work to do to disenchant ourselves from some pretty dark forces. And particularly, I want to address and dig into the dynamics within the social net networks of our society. I've been reading and listening to a guy by the name of Jonathan Hate. Jonathan H-A-I-G-T. He's done a number of interviews, uh, podcasts, things like that. He's most recently talked to Andy Crouch, a Christian author and pastor and leader. Um, He wrote a really good paper in the Atlantic. Uh, He's a New York, uh, he's an NYU uh, business school professor, um, speaking to some degree. He's a social psychologist. He's speaking in some ways uh, about uh, democracy and the, the principles of democracy. So I suspect he tilts in a political direction. Uh, My reason for pointing you to this is the unbelievable scholarly work that he's done to dissect what's happening in our social networks. I'm borrowing quite a bit from him this morning. His uh, paper, which um, I'm going to try to send to you, by the way, you look for that in your text. Uh, It's called The Dark Psychology of Our Social Networks. And this is what I want to dig into, the dark side of psychology, the, the, the business model within, the addictive dynamics of, and at the heart of our technological uh, social networks. I don't know if you've been looking at this, but the academic studies are mounting. Research is building up. Uh, to undeniable conclusions about the manipulations and the addictions that are rooted in the designs and the dynamics of those platforms. It's not the platforms themselves per se. It's not social media. It's not uh, networks that are inherently wrong. It's the dynamics and the designs and the manipulations within them that has the dark effect. The social networks, I think it's, it's okay to say they have been and they are and they can be used in healthy ways for good things, to connect people. But these uh, other forces beneath it are wreaking havoc that is likely going to last for generations because we didn't see it coming. Those that were born in 1996 and after uh, have almost exclusively been raised within that uh, umbrella. And we had really no idea what was going on and how it was affecting them until they got to college in 2014 and things radically changed. And now they're going to be raising children uh, uh, with the deficiencies that have been um, implanted in them, that we were entirely unaware of. Um, th- it, at earlier and earlier ages, there are there are things going on within those uh, networks that we've got to dig into. Uh, it's misshaping personhood and underdeveloping minds at in adolescents particularly, in the most formative years of their lives. And we're seeing the impact. Compared to 10 years ago, the symptoms that have been reported consistent with major depression have grown by 50% in 10 years, up through, like, 2019. 63% in young adults. Uh, 71% increase in, in young adults experiencing serious psychological distress And the rate of young adults with suicidal thoughts and other suicide-related outcomes has increased 47% in 10 years prior to 2019. If you put the last two years into the equation, those things jump by two to four times just in two years. Our national mental health condition is sophisticated and it's complicated. It's not rooted in social networking. The focus of My recent research and the reading I've been doing is focused there. I don't want to overstate that, but I will say this, that the dynamics of social networks, in my opinion, have a very unique impact that is nearly universal. So it affects everybody. Where the whole idea of mental health is unique and different in many spaces, this dynamic is nearly almost completely universal. We're enchanted by what's on the surface. We're very engaged by how the social networks can help us and enhance our lives and make things easier and quicker. It offers micro-rewards, a vast array of really trustless relationships, but many relationships that hang by a thread, vast swaths of our kids and young adults and many throughout all generations. It's not just affecting the, the younger generations. It's affecting every generation to some degree are ensnared by a nearly uninterrupted interface with the forces within it. You get what I'm saying? Are you with me? It's producing a new generation of humanity that's underdeveloped. It creates shallow thinking, fragility, and inability to resolve real problems The information availability to young people makes them arrogant, yet they go into adult life insecure, which is a very weird combination, emotionally stunted and scared to death, scared to death. It's a generation that's going to ultimately find itself populating a shattered society if we don't listen to Jesus. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it. It may be shocking to you how applicable Jesus commands, his directions, his discipleship is. As ancient as the teachings are, we are shown again and again and again how what God teaches is timeless, timeless. It's part of the the proof of God. What other ancient teaching can impact today's world as powerfully, I think you're going to see, and you'll be reinvigorated to listen to him and to follow him. The scriptures tell us that the seed of God has been planted within humanity. The seed of God. In, in a sense, the DNA of God is there. We're, we're created in his image. We have a God potential to bloom and to broaden. You can read about this in Genesis 1. You know, it says in Genesis 1, what does he say to his, to his, to his new creation of humanity? Be fruitful and multiply. We have the capacity within us. We have the seed within us. But there is a force, Jesus tells us, that is relentlessly working to thwart the process of fully realized humanity. God designed humanity. Jesus says, I am the gate whoever enters through me will be saved. He was probably looking at a a pen that had been created for sheep, and he was teaching. He said, look at how these sheep are going in and out of this gate. I'm I'm like that gate. I am the one who creates life for these sheep. They do what they do. They come in and go, this is their life. But he says, there are others that have come. There is a thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy, to take away the life of the sheep. I have come, Jesus said, so that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says there is a way to become fully human and it's me, but there's a force working against us. Jesus goes on, like I said, maybe surprisingly provides a way to escape the grip of forces that are impacting us today that are intentionally, insidiously attempting to and, 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 and accomplishing the stealing of our humanity, or at the very least, radically diminishing it. Saying it simply, Jesus provides and God has designed humanity to flourish, while dark forces mean for humanity to perish In the world, dark forces are invading, as they always have, relatively otherwise good things, like economies and institutions and technologies and sexuality and ingenuity and entertainment. And those dark forces tap into that that design within us that we can be enchanted, and it enchants us and draws us in in negative ways and traps us and hopes to extinguish what God has designed for his people. And for the most part, we walk through life unaware, as is the case for years and years and years now with what's going on inside these social networks. We pay a huge price. We always pay a huge price when we indulge our worst impulses, but more so when our worst impulses are secretly exploited. It's evil. It's wicked. It should come as no surprise that the origin of life itself, Jesus says, it will cost us to get it back. He says, is it okay to start working in the right ways? If humanity is to flourish as God intends, it will not be easy. To be fully human is hard work. It's hard work. To be godly... And to be fully human as God designed requires something of us. It costs something. Listen to what he says. This is in Mark chapter 8. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, "Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to learn with from me, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to walk with me, you must deny yourself." Denying yourself. That's work. You, you and I want to go a certain way. We have certain things that, enhance, that, that enthrall us, that, that invigor us. And he says, you have to deny yourself to follow me. You have to take up your cross, the circumstances of pain and tragedy in your life. You have to pick them up. You can't live in denial if you're going to follow me. You have to deny yourself, and then you can't live in denial of the circumstances that encumber this life. It's unavoidable. You have to pick it up. It's work. It's grief. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it, he says, for someone to gain the whole world, which is what we want to do? We want to gain the whole world as much as we can. He says, what good is it if you gain the whore, but you forfeit your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the son of man will be ashamed of them. That's hard to hear. If you want to follow me, you're going, it's going to cost you something. It's going to require some work. But if you're too ashamed to follow me, I will be ashamed of you. Jesus is saying everything costs something. Everything costs something. But if you're paying and you're working for rewards contained to this world, you lose the rewards designed for the deeper eternal you. You lose the truest you and you lose God. Your most critical relationship. Now and forever. He says this again, in, uh, uh, and Luke captures it in chapter 14. Again, he's traveling with large crowds, and he turns to the crowd and says, which he always does, whenever Jesus sees a large crowd, I, I think his thought process must have been, they don't really understand the cost, or there wouldn't be so many people following me. So he turns around, and he says, listen, do you understand? If, if anyone comes to me, if you're going to follow me, and you don't hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children, your brothers, and in even your own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. It's a hard teaching. What is your life? What is it you have to give up your life? Well, it might be a little more complicated than this, but if you think about your life, it is your family system. It's your social standing. It's your financial stability. It's your physical well-being. But he says you have to give up your life. He's speaking to those spaces. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? If you're going to follow me, you've got to understand it's going to cost you something. It's going to require something of you significantly and you might as well just consider whether you're going to pay that cost now. Before we go any further, won't you sit down and estimate the cost? In the same way, those of you who do not give up, everything you have cannot be my disciple. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's just thrown out. Jesus is saying, your truest humanity is meant to grow and to be a redemptive, salty force in the world. You've been implanted with the DNA of God. You have the seed of God within you. It is meant to flourish not only you, but society itself so that you can be a redemptive force in this world to be salty. But if you don't put in the work, if you don't pay the cost, you don't grow in stature and maturity into godliness, you will not be salty. You cannot enjoy the meaning and the purposes that God has intended for you. It's hard work to form godly character, to flourish as humans. And that work involves the risks and sacrifices and vulnerabilities associated with trusting God rather than the safer, easier places of your life. Let me say that again and explain it a little bit. What God is particularly asking his people to do is to come out from under the umbrellas of safety and the things that we put our confidence and our identity and our trust in and instead turn it to him. He's saying, I need you to give up your life. I need you to stop depending on your family for everything I need you to stop depending on your finances for everything. I need you to stop depending on your social status. I need you to stop thinking that your physical abilities have anything to do with your spiritual capacities. I need you to come out from under those things and start to trust me. And that's work. It takes a lot of work to step away in, in, in gradual ways from the things that we depend on in this life. And you know you don't get the things in this life. You don't, you don't have the family structures that you need and want. You don't have the financial situation that you need and want. You don't have the health you want. You don't have the social standing you want. You don't have any of that stuff without a lot of work. You are where you are in this life because of how hard you've worked to get it. And Jesus said, you need to keep working, but on the right stuff, not that stuff. You ready to start working? It's not easy to be fully, deeply mature. To become Christ-like, to develop as a whole eternal person, and as a society is a narrow road. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It is work. It costs something. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. We are not loved and forgiven by God through our performance or our work, but by grace. But listen, no one can boast about their salvation, about their forgiveness, about their redemption with God. That isn't something we earned, it was gifted to us through the work of Christ but, he says, you are my workmanship and you are created now in Christ Jesus to do good works. No work for salvation, but work for sanctification. It costs something. This is the crux of the issue of our problems with the dynamics beneath our technology, particularly in our social networks. Listen to this. You will resonate with this if you haven't already studied it. Technology... Not just today's technology, but any advances in tech jo- in technology almost always promise what: less work, more gain. Right? More profits, requiring less work, easier profits. That's what technology does. We can work faster, better, stronger, make more money with less work. You and I embrace this axiom more than we would like to admit. It is good if more can be gained at less expense. Who would argue with that? Jesus would. It works against godly development and human flourishing. Ease, rather than work, is one of the primary destructive dynamics of our social mediums. This is where I'm borrowing heavily from uh, Jonathan Haidt, the guy I mentioned earlier. Technology and what's happening inside social networks is predominantly easy and destructive. Requires work. Work is how we grow. Why are things like child rearing, marriage, health crisis, and death among the leading mediums that mature us. Unavoidable work. You can't escape it. Why do we hand our children screens when we know it's not best? Makes life easier. Why do we prohibit our children from unsupervised work of playing with other children? solving their own problems it's too hard it's too painful why do we one click buy stuff when we don't need it it's easy why do we eat fast food piece of cake man literally there's four things that are going on inside social networks that i want you to be aware of and for the most part this morning i'm gonna i'm highlighting things bring it to your mind maybe The application of these things is going to come in the weeks to follow. A a lot of it, you'll just intuitively understand. But what I want to do more than anything else is kind of dig down into what's really happening. The The most damaging dynamic within social networks is the viral dynamic. What used to be distant promises, maybe unreachable promises of power and fame and fortune, in a sense, are easy, or at least they seem possible for anyone. They see people who, by all means, have no skill, no character, no, no efficiency. They, they, they shouldn't be famous, but they are. So it seemed like anybody can do it. The like button across all the platforms changed everything, and the designers knew it, and a lot of them are suffering quite a bit of guilt from having done it. They had the moral debates, and they decided to do it, A person with the right emotional vocabulary, a negative one primarily, and a hot-button context and a vulnerable target, anyone can gather some support and power and destroy a person's life or an institution. You remember the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel. Humans were gathering together. They could all speak the same language, and they were building their own way to God. And God looked down and he said, this is a bad thing. These people are going viral here. They're they're building power amongst themselves to compete with God. And they need to stay in their humanity and struggle there and let me be God. So he distorted their languages. He confused their languages so that they couldn't collaborate at that level. That's what's going on right now. Masses of people are joining together and choosing to be God. And whatever is their fancy. Jesus even fights against viralness. How many times when Jesus did a miracle did he say these confusing things, don't tell anybody? Why was that? Because he knew. He knew about the Tower of Babel. He knew what would happen, that those in power would take that information, spin it, turn it, ramp up a whole lot of people, and shut down or attempt to shut down the work that Jesus knew he needed to do for the next two or three years. He knew he needed to stay under the radar and keep his thing from going viral, because when it goes viral, the masses start doing things that are ungodly. The viral dynamic of the social media network is the thing that is the most damaging. Another thing you're going to see commonplace throughout is negativity, and there's a good reason for that. It's easier than positivity. There's a reason. There are plaques in everybody's house that says, uh, uh, point out nine things before you point out one negative thing. Because we point out negative things. We see negative things. It's what catches our eye. Negative, difficult, tragic, actually psychologically, chemically activates us more than pleasurable things. You like a nice sunset, but you can't take your eyes off the accident. Babies are more focused and intently interested on an angry face than a happy face. It's just what happens inside of us. So couple that with virility. If you want to be viral, you're going to be negative, It's easier to see what's wrong. It's easier to complain and criticize than it is to compliment. That's why Jesus spoke about it and Paul reiterated it. Remember this, Philippians? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, which Paul would say is What I've seen in Jesus, put that into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We see the opposite of peace coming out of the social networks because negativity is easier. The more negative, the more attention, the more viral. Do you think Paul taught this particular value of focusing on what's right and pure and lovely? for any other reason, then it's not natural and it wasn't what was happening. This is work. That's work to do that. Third, emotion. Emotion fuels all of the viral things that we see in social networks. So negative emotion, even more so. It's the easiest to exploit. It is work to recognize that and to see that because it's very natural to engage it. And this list one is far more complicated than what I can get in today, but I, again, I want to just heighten your awareness, the business model within it. There is a business model underlying all of our social networks and all of the, the ways that we are purchasing and uh, doing business and, and our, the way our economy works. Good business models almost always, and always eventually if they survive, take care of their customers, right? That, that is page one for any business. Take care of your customer, even if it's for selfish reasons, and it usually is. Take care of your customer and you'll, you'll attain more profits, So let me ask you this, why are the business models inside social network platforms harming and ruining their users? Do you know? You're not the customer. Who's the customer? The advertiser. It's about the money. The user, you and me, are being used, manipulated, drawn into being close to their actual customers. We're just the user. Until we force that business model to change and make the user the customer, it's not gonna get any different. Business, the the business models within are using the users. They're leveraging you. The models are there to manipulate users toward the products of their advertisers as often as as possible, if, if not perpetually, if they can. Their entire model is to grab your attention and keep it by feeding you micro rewards for being in here. The worst case scenario for the business model within social networks is for you to put down your device turn it off. Revenues are directly related to whether or not you had, everyone else has a phone in their hand and they're being attracted and drawn in to the economy. Everything within the social network is designed to make it very easy for you to break away from meaningful work, deep thought, and healthy activity and get you back to their customers and their products. And the primary tools for that are viralness, just making that word up, negative, negativity, emotion, and immoral business models. I'm going to have to wrap it up here because I have 12 ways to work against these forces. So we'll talk about those next week, but let me close like this the antidote to this whole thing is to follow Jesus and heed his words that it's going to cost us to be human. It's going to take hard work. That work will be vulnerable work. Remember, part of the work is to get out from under the things that we find safety and comfort in. It requires focused work. It requires disciplined work. You could look at it alternatively and say the solution is to refuse the wide path, to refuse to take the easy way, refusing to be distracted, refusing to be used. That's part of the work. You know, in scripture, sometimes work is translated worship, same word. It makes sense, doesn't it? There are fundamental, man, fundamental ways that we are meant to reflect God that are embedded in the story that we see in Genesis, in the account of the beginnings. One of those is he works, and so we work. The questions are, why are we working? For what end are we working? The answers to those questions, what are you working for and why, are the beginning of the difference between flourishing in the world and flourishing as God intends for us to flourish. My friend Adam looked through my message and he said this, we need the original vision of the work of humanity to be excavated by the Holy Spirit out from under the rubble of who we have settled for being. He does that. Jesus says the best best path is with him, but that that path is intentionally a hard path of work that brings forth your potential and builds your character. There is a price of true humanity. There is a cost to discipleship, a work that's required for human flourishing. And the recent and current advancements which have yet to be rightly motivated and regulated, are working in direct opposition to that work. Jesus calls us to work. It's up to us to follow and live, to flourish, to be who God's intended us to be as people, as a church, and as a society. God, we uh, just have to humbly admit that uh, we're lazy unless we're working for the wrong things. God, we need, as Adam said, the spirit to work deep within us, give us a picture of real truth and the inclinations and the motivations of God to swim upstream, to put ourselves to work for you and for our best. God, would you help us? Would you invigorate us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us faith? Would you remind us of how safe we are in your arms? How safe our children are in your arms? And Lord, help us to do the hard work of being your people, your children, your army, your family. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.